This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. If you have your Bibles with you, please open it to the book of Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. If you need a Bible, you can shoot your hand up in the air. Uh, we have people in the back who would be happy to get a Bible to you. We will make sure that everyone has a copy of God's Word in front of them today. Next week, we're going to be picking back up in our series that we left off in early November to kind of take some break for the holidays. We're picking back up in our series in Judges, and I'm really looking forward to getting back into that book. But as you've heard this morning, this is what we call Vision Sunday. It's a Sunday that we set aside each year to discuss and consider what God has ahead for us as a church in 2024. And as our leadership team has been praying and discussing, and then praying and discussing some more, God has really given us a clear sense of a vision that he's calling us into. And it's what Habakkuk chapter 3 talks about. So you want to look for the book of Habakkuk, turn to chapter 3. If you're having a hard time finding Habakkuk, don't try to be a hero. Just look it up in the table of contents. It's a really small book. Uh, You'll be served by that. To get us ready to look at this text, I want you to consider with me three different people who all go on a cruise. A cruise to a sunny part of the world sounds really good right now, doesn't it? Um, These three different people, they all get on uh, a Sign up for a cruise, they, they, they go to the boat, they get on the boat, they go to their different rooms, and when they get into their rooms, each of these three different people have three different responses. The first person is terrified of being on a boat. I'm not really sure why they booked a cruise in the first place, uh, but they're terrified of being on a boat, and so they stay in their room for the entire duration of the cruise because that's where they feel safe. The second person comes to their room, and they're not scared at all, but when they get to their room, they actually enjoy their room. Like, hey, it's a pretty nice place. There's a TV. It's not that big, but, you know, at least gives me something to do. They find out there's room service. The food is certainly not as good as what you can get on the rest of the ship, but it ain't too bad. It gets the job done. And so because their room is comfortable, they also stay for the duration of the cruise in that room where it is comfortable. The third person, they put their bags down in the room, But then they do what you're supposed to do on a cruise boat. They go exploring. And each deck brings a new surprise and delight. On deck three, there is an ice skating rink. Who knew you can even have ice skating rinks on a cruise boat? Deck four is where the food promenade is, where you can get exotic foods from all different parts of the world. And ice cream, 24 hours a day. At the top of the boat, there is pool after pool, and each pool has a beautiful vista of the surrounding area that the cruise is going by. There is a zip line, there's a rock climbing wall, so many things to do and discover. And this person just enjoys exploring each new part of the boat. The next day, they get into their harbor, their destination, and again, the person who wants to stay safe stays in the room. The person who wants to stay comfortable also stays in their room. But the person who's excited, they're like, man, there must be more. And so they step off the boat and go to explore all that the destination has to offer. And this continues for the entire duration of the cruise. I want to ask you, who enjoyed that cruise the most? Who enjoyed that cruise the most? Well, certainly it was not the person who was scared and just stay where they felt safe. It was also not the person who was content to stay where they felt comfortable. The person who enjoyed the cruise the most was the person who kept looking for more 
of what the boat had to offer and the destinations could provide. And this is what we, as your pastoral team, believe that God is calling us into in the year 2024. It's a year where we would not be content to stay where it is safe, where we would not be okay with just staying in what is comfortable, but that we would have a holy hunger for more of the Lord. This is a special year for us as Christ Church. In 2025, we will celebrate 10 years of having our church building opened here. We're going to make a big bash of it March 2025. Save the date now. Looking forward to spending that time with you. But this March marks 10 years of when a small team of people from five different churches came together to start this work here in South Philly. Started meeting in the Gregory's living room. It took us about a year to actually get going because of unforeseen complications with both my health and also renovations to this building. But God met us in that year in a profound way and really laid the groundwork for what has become the beautiful community that is Christ Church. And as I see what God has done, which honestly is far beyond anything that I could have ever imagined or planned for or led us into, this is certainly the Lord's doing. As I look back on 10 years of seeing God move, my prayer is, Lord, I'm hungry for more. I'm hungry for more of you in my life. I'm hungry for more of him in each one of you here. I'm hungry for more of him so filling us that he would then explode out of us to the city around us. Lord, I'm hungry for more. That's been my prayer. There's a biblical word for what it means to experience a hunger for more of God. It's a biblical word for what it means to experience God working even more powerfully in your life. That's a word that we're going to see Habakkuk use. As he prays to the Lord in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Let's turn our attention to God's word. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let's pray that God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. It's all about our heads. I want to encourage you to have a time of prayer between you and God. And just ask God to speak to you through what you're about to hear. Now, please pray also for me because I need God's help. So pray that I be strengthened to preach to you in a way that would be helpful to you and glorifying to him. God, thank you that you are a God who wants to make yourself known to us. Who wants to draw us deeper into a relationship with you. And part of how you do that is through speaking to us in your word. And so God, I pray that as we now come before your word and humble ourselves before you, 
that you would give us eyes to see what you want to show us about yourself. Give us ears to hear what you want to say to us about yourself. And give us hearts to receive what you want to give us about yourself. Pray these things, Lord, so that our faith in you might be strengthened. And so that your name would be glorified more in our midst. Wherever we are, Lord God, whether we are people here who aren't Christians and are coming with questions, or whether we're people here who have been Christians for decades, Lord, wherever we are, please meet us where we are. And please do not leave us as we are. But Lord, would you move in us through your spirit to more deeply delight in you for the glory of you. Praise the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as we come to this text, here's what this prophet Habakkuk is praying for. He says, Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. In the midst of the years, revive it. He's praying for revival. I've tagged this sermon, a prayer for revival. A prayer for revival. Now that word revival can often be misunderstood. I think in our culture, if you've heard that word, generally, revivals are associated with mass evangelism. There's lots of people who are not Christians becoming Christians. That might be a fruit of of revival, but it's not actually the biblical meaning of the word. Habakkuk is praying for revival as someone who is already a part of the people of God, who is asking God to do even more work in his people. And so revival is not about people coming to faith, but people who already have faith being deepened in that faith. Revival is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and then hungering for more of him in your souls. And when that happens, when God's people are hungering for him and on fire for him, then non-believers will see and wonder what is going on and they will be drawn to faith in Jesus. And so revival will lead to conversions. But in scripture we see that revival always starts in the people of God. Revival is about what God wants to do in us so that he can then do even more work through us. It's about what he wants to do in us not just once, but over and over again. Revival is not about being moved in a moment, but rather transformed over a lifetime. It's not a temporary excitement, but a continual adjustment to the will of God in your life. It's not a fleeting fervor, but an ongoing spiritual formation. Revival is believing and embracing and pursuing the reality that what 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says is true. That we are, by the Spirit, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so in many ways, you can think about revival as a holy discontentment. You can think about it as a righteous restlessness. A hunger and desire and pursuit of more of the Lord operating in your life. And this revival is not something that we can work up in and of ourselves. No, verse 1 says that Habakkuk is praying according to the Shigianoth. Now, commentators aren't exactly sure what this whole Shigianoth thing is. It's a very obscure term. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it the right way, to be quite frank with you. It could be a musical instrument. Some people think it's a musical term. So maybe this is a prayer that was being sung. People aren't exactly sure. But what is clear is that this is a prayer. 
Habakkuk is praying. He wants to see something happen, but he doesn't start with trying to take action to make it happen. No, he starts by spending time with the Lord in prayer. You see, when we get to work, then we work. But when we pray, oh, that's when God gets to work. How often we can approach our spiritual lives in just our own strength. We can think about as stuff that we need to learn to think or things that we need to learn to do. Now, certainly our spiritual life involves our thinking and it involves our doing. But we can't miss out on the fact that our spiritual life is, at its core, spiritual. And so if we want to grow spiritually, then we need to spend time in prayer seeking the Lord. Because only He can accomplish things in us spiritually that we could have never accomplished by ourselves intellectually or behaviorally. Friends, we are a needy people who are desperately dependent upon God to work in our lives in ways beyond which we could possibly work up in ourselves. And so what this passage is directing us to is to be a people of prayer and specifically to be people who pray for revival. This is what we believe as your pastoral team that God wants to take us deeper into this year. He wants to teach us more about what it means to be a people who are given to pray and not just pray in general, but a people who know what it means to pray for an ongoing spiritual revival in our lives. So let's dig deeper into this text and consider what that means. I think there are three things this text draws our attention to about what it means to pray for revival. First, a prayer for revival is a prayer for more gratitude. Habakkuk says, I have heard, O Lord, of the report of you. As he prays, he is thinking back on what God has already done. He starts by thinking back on the report that he has already heard. He doesn't start by asking God to do stuff. No, first he starts by thanking God for the stuff that God has already done. And it's thinking back on what God has already done that then stirs his heart to pray, Lord, would you do it some more? I think we often shoot ourselves in the foot in our prayer life because we focus so much on praying for things that we want to see happen that since our focus is on all these things that haven't happened yet, we actually can over time get discouraged and become defeated because we're constantly looking at things that aren't. Now listen, we need to pray for things that aren't. We need to pray for God to move in powerful ways, absolutely. But those prayers need to be anchored by not just asking God for things that aren't yet. They need to be anchored by first thanking God for the things that are. It is past gratitude that inspires present faith for the future ways that God will work. It's only when we pray for what God and thank Him for what He has done that He stirs in our hearts faith for what He can do. You see, when we realize that the God of yesterday is the same God of today, oh, that's what inspires us with faith to ask him to move in powerful ways today. Habakkuk says, Lord, I've heard the report of you. What is this report that he has heard? Well, he goes on throughout the rest of this chapter to speak of various kinds of imagery that are all taken from the first five books of the Bible. And so he'll use imagery that refers to uh, the Exodus, when the Israelite people had the impassable Red Sea in front of them. And they had the Egyptian army bearing down on them. They were trapped 
with nowhere to go. And God gave him a powerful deliverance as he opened up the water, allowing the Israelites to pass through to safety. And then when their enemies tried to pursue them, he brought the waters down upon them and defeated their enemies for them without the Israelites even needing to lift a finger. Habakkuk goes on then to describe the time when God scattered the enemies of Israel, the Cushites and the Midianites who were occupying the land that God had promised to the Israelites. God sent them running without the Israelites even needing to fight that battle. They showed up to fight, and their enemies were already gone. He goes on to speak about a time when God made the sun stand still. God delayed the ending of a day so that his people could continue to see their enemies and fight their enemies until the battle was over and won by the Lord. Habakkuk just goes through biblical history, recounting story after story, report after report of all that God has done. And so for us, we can look back on those same things and see ways that God has dramatically saved his people. But for us, we get to not only look back on those things, we then get to look back on those things through the lens of Jesus and see how each of those things are meant to point to and show us how Christ is the even greater and sure fulfillment of salvation that all those things pointed to. You see, just like those Israelites were trapped between the Red Sea and the enemy with nowhere to go, so too we are trapped between God's judgment in front of us that we could not pass through and the enemy of death that was pursuing us behind us we could not turn back. We were left with nowhere to go, but Jesus came and he parted the waters of God's judgment by taking that judgment upon himself on the cross so that now we can pass safely through that and enter into God's promised land. And then not only did he lead us away to pass through, but he has defeated the enemy that was pursuing us because when death tries to get us, oh no, because Jesus is no longer dead, but because he rose from the dead, he has defeated death once and for all. And so death for the Christian is not our end, it is actually now our beginning. To close our life in this is to open them in eternity where we are made to live with God forever. Jesus did all this without us needing to lift a finger. He is also the one who has won the battle for us by driving out the enemies, just like he drove out the enemies for the people of Israel, of Cushan and Midian. Jesus has driven out our greater enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And he is the light of the world who never sets but always shines. And therefore in him we can be strengthened to fight the daily battles of life, and he promises us final victory in him. You see, the point is that in each and every report that Habakkuk lists here, we are to see an even greater report of what God has done for us in Jesus. And friends, as we consider that, friend, I just, I just hope you personalize this. Like when we're talking about God's salvation, I hope that's not a doctrine to you. I hope that is your story. May we keep our salvation stories close to our heart. When I think about how I used to be an arrogant, self-righteous liar and manipulator going through life, consumed with just what I wanted and not caring about anyone else, and yet Jesus broke into my life and rescued me and saved me even when I didn't know I needed saving. When he came and brought me to a realization of himself and showed me a mercy that I still can't get over, friends, as I think about what God has done for me. That's what encourages me and inspires me and shows me there ain't nothing this God can't do. The God who was is the God who is and the God who evermore will be. And so if we want our faith stirred for what God can do, then we need to regularly and repeatedly 
give him some praise of gratitude for what he's already done. A prayer for revival does not start by asking God to work. No, it starts with thanking God for how he has already worked in Christ. And so may this year be a year where we pray even more for even more gratefulness for what God has done for us in Jesus, which would then inspire us with even more faith that if God can do that for us, there's so much he can do now through us. A prayer for revival is a prayer for more gratefulness. Second, a prayer for revival is a prayer for more reverence. It's a prayer for more reverence. Habakkuk says, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. As Habakkuk considers the work of God, he is filled with fear. Not fear in the sense of being afraid, but fear in the sense of being in awe, of having a holy reverence. As he considers the greatness of what God has done, that just fills him with this awe of who this God is. It makes me think about the time that Jesus was on a boat with his disciples, and he's just so tired from the day that he goes to sleep. And as he sleeps, a massive storm breaks out. Waves that were almost capsizing the boat. These disciples who were hardened fishermen, they were used to being on a sea. They were not used to seeing storms like this. They're terrified. And so they wake him up and say, don't you care that we're perishing? They're afraid of the storm. Jesus stands up and he just speaks to the winds and the waves and says, be still. And the raging storm stops. And the sea is turned to glass. And when that happened, Luke 8.25 tells us that the disciples were filled with fear, not of the storm. Now they're filled with fear of Jesus. Before, they had been afraid of what the storm could do to them. Now, they were in awe of this person who was in the boat with them. Who is this, they say, that even the winds and the waves obey his voice? See, part of praying for revival is asking God to give us a greater understanding of his power, to give us a greater understanding of his glory, to give us a greater understanding of his magnificence and transcendence. It's being asked, it's, it's asking God to fill us with all in such a way that it actually doesn't matter the size of the waves around us. It no longer matters what we're going through in life and how scary things might be. No, what is consuming us is in awe of how great God is. You know, we are, as a people, hardwired to desire awe. We are people who love to love greatness. If you're into music, my guess is that you like great music. If it's bad music, you probably don't appreciate it too much. I'm not that into music, and so I really can't tell the difference, but I'm sure you can. If you're into sports, you want your team to be great. You want to be in awe of their talent. If you're an Eagles fan like me, it's a very hard time for us right now. There's not much go all going on at all. We love to celebrate greatness. We are people who want to be in awe. And friends, it's God who made us this way. It's God who gave us this desire for all. Why? Because he knows that that desire will ultimately direct us to him. Because there is no one who is more awe-inspiring than he is. And friends, this is why he gives us the gift of his word. 
Habakkuk said that he heard the report of what God had done and that it was hearing that report that filled him with holy reverence. Where did he hear the report? Not because he was there. He wasn't there when the Red Sea was parted. He wasn't there when the sun stood still. He wasn't there for any of it. How did he hear God's report? Well, all those things are recorded in the first five books of the Bible. And so how did he hear God's report? He heard it because he was reading it. He heard it because he was reading the word of God. And it was the word of God that then led him into this deeper reverence for God. Friends, if we want to be in all of God, then we need to give ourselves to the study of God's word. Because it is here where he reveals who he is. If we don't read our Bibles regularly, then we're limiting our understanding of God to what we can think of in our own minds. And how small and puny and honestly pathetic that kind of God is. But when we read God's word, we position ourselves to see God as he reveals himself to be. And to have our minds absolutely blown. Now, this doesn't mean that every time we read scripture, we should expect it to be this kind of transcendent experience. No, sometimes we have to dig and dig in order to find its treasures. And that's actually one of the reasons why as a church we have Bible studies. We do that so that we can equip people with tools about how to dig into God's word to find more of the treasure of him in these pages. But friends, let's be clear. The treasure of him is in these pages. And as we discover these things, oh, it's, it's seeing him leaping off these pages that changes our lives. We need the word of God to fill us and lead us into greater awe of God. You know, this world is full of so many words, isn't it? We hear so many different words as we go throughout our days, don't we? I was reading an article that says that the average person on any given day hears anywhere from 20,000 to 30,000 words. We open our phones, they're full of words. We have conversations at our works or schools, full of words, right? We turn on the news or we listen to things, we're full of words. There are words that are constantly bombarding us. This world is so full of words. And so if we are not intentionally also taking in and reading God's word, then what words do we think are going to be shaping us? When When we don't take in God's word, we're allowing the world's words to be what informs how we view the world. And no wonder God can seem distant and small and uninvolved in our lives. Friends, we need to give ourselves to hearing the report of God through reading his word. And in doing so, praying, God, would you show me yourself on these pages? We need to be clear that as we read God's word, it is a book, but it is a spiritual book. And so we need to read it. And then we need to pray for God's spiritual help to understand it. I've used this analogy before, but I often think about the relationship of reading the Bible and prayer as a relationship between a log and a flame. If you want to build a fire, you need to have logs. You need to have content. You need to have something that can burn. But if all you do is have logs without a flame, nothing will burn. And so I think about reading the Bible as the logs. That's what gives us content. That's what fills us with things that we can know about God. But then prayer is like the flame that comes and sets those logs on fire. And so friends, if we want to burn for the Lord, if we want to burn to be in all of him, then what we need to do is we need to lay the logs of his word regularly and repeatedly upon our hearts and then pray, God, would you show me what you're saying through these pages. It is through prayerful, spirit-filled meditation upon his word that God leads us into greater reverence of him. 
And it's greater reverence for the Lord that fuels our obedience to the Lord. Friends, if you want to grow in listening to what God says, staying away from that which God says is harmful to you, and pursuing that which God says give life to you, if you want to live in the goodness of God's purposes for you by listening to and obeying his voice, then what you need is not a guilt trip. What you need is to be filled with awe and wonder and reverence for the greatness of who this God is, and that comes through nowhere else except his word driven by his spirit. And so as we pray for revival, we're praying that God would give us a greater reverence for him driven into our hearts through his holy word that's illuminated to us and set on fire in our lives by praying for his Holy Spirit to fill us so we might understand it. The prayer for revival is a prayer for more gratitude. It's a prayer for more reverence. Third, the prayer for revival is a prayer for more mercy. Habakkuk says, at the end here, as he's talking to God, he asks, God, in your wrath, in your wrath, remember mercy. That word wrath is a strong word in our English language, isn't it? The reason it's being used here is because it's translating a very strong word in the Hebrew. The word that's translating here in the Hebrew that Habakkuk is using is a word that means to thunder, so speaking with, about power, to thunder with rage. Wrath is thunderous rage, which is a very scary thing to think about if we're talking about God having wrath. It means that God is filled with a thunderous rage. That sounds really scary. It sounds pretty judgmental, actually. We don't want to get near to a God like that, and so often I think we can avoid stuff like this. We can avoid thinking about God's wrath. But friends, I'm convinced that it's the avoidance of thinking about God's wrath that leads our experience of God's mercy to so often fall flat on our hearts. Mercy without context is really meaningless. If someone bumps into me by accident and says, oh, my bad, I'm like, hey, no big deal. Like, if you're seeing that interaction, you're not being blown away. Wow, Jeff is such a merciful person. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. But when Dylan Roof callously walked into Charleston Emanuel AME Church and shot and killed nine people in a horrific act of racist murder, and when one of the victim's daughters stood up at his trial and said, you took someone really precious away from me, and I'll never again be able to talk to her, hear her, or hug her. But I want you to know that I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. That kind of mercy makes you wonder, how is that even possible? That person should have been filled with thunderous rage. The wrath was certainly justifiable because of the wrong that they had endured. And yet it was the context of that wrath that made their mercy so amazing. Friends, we need to understand that God's mercy to us will only be as astounding as we understand how justifiable his wrath is against us.
we, we can think about the stuff we do sometimes is no big deal. Something as simple as like what I just described, like bumping into someone. Ah, that's a shame. Wish I didn't do it. But it's not that big a deal. There's a passage in the Bible, one of those graphic stories in the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 16. I encourage you to maybe consider reading it later this afternoon. It's not for the faint of heart. But Ezekiel chapter 16, it's a story that God shares to describe what our sin feels like towards him. The story goes that there's a woman who had been abandoned and thrown out in disgrace and left to die. And then this man comes along and he takes her into his home. And he clothes her and feeds her and nurses her back to life. And then, even though she had nothing to offer, he marries her and gives her all that is his. But instead of resting in and enjoying her husband's lavish love, she begins to prostitute herself. But not even for pay. No, she actually pays. She takes money stolen from her husband and pays for men to come and sleep with her. And the men that she invites into her bed are not just any men. No, they are specifically chosen her husband's enemies. And so the one who clothed her and nourished her and protected her, who was true to her, who had cared for her, who had loved her, she betrayed in a deep and very cuttingly personal way. And it is in that betrayal that we see the horror of what our sin truly is against God. Sin is not just doing a few regrettable things. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'll try better next time. No, sin is choosing to cut and betray the God who loves us with all his heart. You see, just like this woman, we owe our very lives to God. No, no one here chose to be born. God is the one who brought us to life. And he brought us to life for the purpose of loving him and enjoying his love above everything else. He, he wants his love for us and our love for him to be what shapes us and guides us and leads us in life. And yet sin is choosing to take the life that God gave us and use it to give ourselves to other things. Sin is being shaped by desires other than pleasing the Lord. It could take the form of something destructive, like drug addiction, or it could take the form of something that appears seemingly innocuous, like just working too much because you crave financial security and success. But if anyone or anything displaces God as the great love of our life, if anyone or anything becomes that which drives our decisions and shapes us and forms us more than him, friends, that is a betrayal of the God who's loved us so lavishly. It's taking the life he has given us and using it to prostitute ourselves to other things. And this is why our sin against God provokes the wrath of God. Friends, we need to be very clear. God's wrath is justifiable. Which is what makes his mercy so astounding. Habakkuk is praying here, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. Friends, for us standing on this side of the cross... We see that in God's wrath, he has remembered mercy. Because Jesus Christ came and took on our sin. So that God's wrath for sin 
could descend upon him. And therefore, God's mercy could be shown to us. And it is our deepening understanding of God's holiness and greatness, and therefore his justifiable wrath towards us. It's a deepening understanding of his holiness and our sinfulness, the reality that, yes, we do sin, not just in things we've done back in the day, but, man, we still sin in things that we can continue to struggle with. It's a deepening understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness that then should show us more and more and more of the depths of God's mercy to us in Christ. And friends, I'm convinced that this is how the good news of Jesus never becomes old news to us. This is how the love of God stays fresh in our hearts. It's by the mercy of God just becoming more and more amazing to us. I mean, I don't know about you, but the longer I'm a Christian, the more amazed I am that I am a Christian. I'm so much more aware today of God's holiness than I was when I first believed. And I'm so much more aware today of my sinfulness than when I first believed. I'm so much more aware today of Jesus Christ, who's had mercy on a chief of sinners even like myself. And my hope and prayer is that by the end of 2024, that I'll be even more aware of his mercy than I am today. My hope and prayer is that I'd be even more aware of God's holiness. My hope and prayer is that I'd be even more aware of my own sinfulness, that my sensitivity to my sin would grow. And that from that place, I'd be even more and more amazed at the wrath-bearing Savior, Jesus Christ, who has shown such mercy to me and to anyone here who's put their faith in him. Friends, this is my prayer for myself. This is my prayer for you. And I do want to take this moment to speak directly to anyone here who has yet to put their faith in Jesus. I do not want to assume at all that people here, all listening, have all placed their faith in Christ. Friends, if you're here, I believe it's because God right now in this moment is extending mercy to you. I know this talk about God's wrath can be uncomfortable, Certainly not something we talk a lot about in our culture, but I just don't want to lie about what the Bible says because that would just be a waste of your time and ultimately would not be glorifying to God. And so I want to be very clear. If you do not believe in Jesus today, then you are under God's justifiable wrath. And you can either be offended by that or you can be broken. And you can turn, and you can come to Christ who has sweet mercies for you. Oh, there is a depth of love beyond which anything you've ever experienced before. It's the love of the God who owes you nothing but death, and yet came and died that death for you. There's a love of a God who loves you so much that he gave his life for you. It's my prayers that anyone listening to this who doesn't yet believe in Jesus, that today be the day that you taste and see the sweetness of God's mercy to you.
for those of us who have friends, it is this experience of mercy. Uh, this is the lifeblood from which spiritual revival flows. Seeing God's mercy more and more is what then makes us hunger for God more and more because we realize there is no one like this God. And so who else and what else could we possibly want more of than him? This is the God who, yes, in his wrath, he remembers mercy. Oh, I got to taste and see a little bit more of how good he is. As we come to a close, I want to tell you a true story that I hope kind of pulls us all together and drives it home to our heart. There was a theology professor named Dr. Orr in England in the 1940s, he used to take students on a field trip to various famous religious historical sites. One of those stops was the house where John Wesley lived, had lived. John Wesley was a man who had been used by God to lead a great revival that swept through almost all of Europe and then spilled over into America. It was known as the First and Second Great Awakenings. It was a time when God moved in one of the most powerful ways in human history. The tour of the house would go through each room. It would start in the foyer. This is where John Wesley would greet his guests. It would go into the living room. This is where John Wesley would entertain his guests. It would go into the kitchen. This is where John Wesley ate. It would move up into his study. This is where John Wesley read and wrote. But it would always end in the same place. It would end in his bedroom. Where Dr. Orr would point out to the students, notice the two worn places next to John Wesley's bed. This is the place where John Wesley prayed for years for God to bring revival. On one particular trip, after taking his students through the house and then into the bedroom and explaining the worn patches where John Wesley had prayed for years and for hours, everyone you know, got back on the bus. And then when they got on the bus, Dr. Orr was counting heads and realized that one of the students was missing. So he went back in the house and looked for the student. The student was not in the kitchen. The student was not in the living room. The student was not in the study. As he made his way up to the steps of the bedroom, he could hear the student before he could even see him. As he got into the bedroom, he heard the student praying fervently, kneeling in the same place where John Wesley had knelt, and just praying, Lord, would you do it again? Lord, would you do it again? And would you do it with me? The professor was so moved by the student's passion, but they had to get going, and so he touched him on the shoulder and said, hey, let's, let's get back on the bus. And rising from his knees, Billy Graham stood up and joined the rest of the students on the bus. And as you know, he would go on to become a preacher of the gospel for the next 60 years. And through in-person and television, it's estimated he shared about Jesus with over 210 million I'm so grateful that throughout history, there have been individuals who have dared to pray, Lord, would you do it again? And would you do it with me? Oh, may this be our prayer in 2024. May we pray that God would give us a holy hunger for more of him, a desire to see him do it again. That he would revive his work in us and do an even more powerful work 
in us, that he would give us a burning gratitude for Jesus that would go even brighter. That he would give us a burning reverence for God through his word that would shine even more. That he would give us a burning worship for his mercy shown through the cross of Christ. Oh, that God would set us aflame with such a fire that it cannot help but spread out and cause others to catch on fire and create a blaze in our city that would give much glory to God. Friends, may this be a time and a year where we put behind complacency, where we don't idolize comfortability, but we are hungry for more. Listen, this is a wonderful city in so many ways, but it is a dark and lost city in so many ways. And so what we need is we need more of God moving in our lives so that he can then move through our lives to the people around us. We need more of God moving in our souls, more of God moving in our church, more of God moving in our families, more of God moving in the city. Oh, that we would have a holy discontentment and a righteous restlessness for more of God so much so that we just have to get up early and pray because we are aware of how much we need this God and so we just need to seek him and his presence before our day even begins. Oh, that then prayer would remain with us throughout the day. Just a constant awareness that God is with us and we are in his presence and we can talk with him and hear from him and that we then close the day by laying out our hearts in prayer before him. Friends, we are needy people who are desperately dependent upon God and so we we must be a people of prayer. And may our prayer be, Lord, we've heard the report of you. In the midst of this year, would you revive it, O oh God? Friends, may God teach us more about what it means to seek him in prayer. And may we pray for an ongoing spiritual revival in us that then flows through us to the people to which God has sent us. May we do this for the glory of his name. Let's bow our heads and pray in Jesus' name.